0: 2 a.m. and the rabbinical students stand in their bathrobes at the edge of the yeshiva parking lot watching the practice motions of muscular firemen disembarking from their engine. Soon it will be determined that the youngest student in the building pulled the basement alarm after learning over a dormitory payphone that his parents back in Baltimore intend to end their 19-year marriage right before Passover. The only one the rabbis have not accounted for crouches in his closet behind a row of black sports coats. And because the yeshiva caters to souls but also bodies. The early morning mysticism class on why the divine presence cannot dwell amongst those plagued by sadness has been canceled. This poem by Yeshua November is pretty straightforward. It's 2 AM. There's firemen in the empty Yeshiva, a seminary for Jewish students. And there, a fire alarm has been pulled. And there's a desire to find out what is happening, what is going on, as everyone's night has been interrupted. Everyone standing in the empty parking lot in their bathrobes, And there's a worry can we go back in or not? Is there a fire or not? What is going on? An interruption of. Their nighttime sleep, an interruption of their dreams, or even maybe nightmares, an interruption of what the next morning plans just might be. And there is a backstory to it that all of this because of a particular student in his anxiety and his stress and his pain. Here's the story of his parents. And in his distress, not knowing how to sound the own alarm within him, he sounds a physical alarm. One that causes disruption to everyone. The external meets the internal for him. Patrick Otuma exeges this poem calling attention to the class and the mirroring of the students. That the class for the next morning was going to look at why the divine presence cannot dwell among those plagued by sadness. And the fact that they canceled the class isn't just because everybody's going to be tired from being Up since 2 a.m. from a fire alarm but maybe they've learned something maybe they learned something from this distressed student who hides in the closet who weeps who is in pain maybe they've learned that if the divine presence cannot dwell with those who are sad who are running who are in pain then we are all in trouble And maybe they learn that their theology right then was just a little wrong. That from their experience of that night, from what they have witnessed, from the story they have now heard of what is going on, That their hope is just maybe, please, may the divine dwell among us who are in pain. This is a bit of the story of Jacob. We see that Jacob is on the run. He's constantly heard about the power of blessing, the power of words spoken over his life. He has been informed of visions and dreams and stories, promises that have not been fulfilled. Even his mother has whispered in his ear that he is the chosen one. But Jacob has only heard these things. He's not experienced them for himself. If you notice, up until the dream, Jacob throughout Genesis continues to refer to God as the God of my father, not as one who is in personal relationship with God. And while he is chosen and has a calling upon his life, he's not perfect. He is troubled. He is in pain. He is in hurt. He is running Running from his brother's angers and his father's disappointment. He's running from all that he knew and thought was true of his life, from past aggressions, stealing his brother's blessing, lies that he has told, deceit he has made. He's running. And I'm sure in the midst of his running, in, in the midst of not knowing where he's going to stop, where he's going to land, wondering how in the world is this part of the blessing? I thought I was just following the prophecy that the younger shall rule over the older. Why is there constant pain and punishment following me each day of my life? And finally, as he cannot run any longer, he stops and finds himself in a broken and barren land, alone. Alone. Deserted. with the voices in his head. And as he's here in this place, believing that God nor humankind could find him left with no words, he sees a rock. And while he doesn't realize it now, this rock symbolizes the hardships of his past, the rockiness of his present, and the comfort and security of his future. After all of this running, after all of, of these, this, he finds a rock. In the midst of his terror, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his loneliness, a rock, and God comes and speaks to each of us and reveals God's self to us differently and in this particular story, God reveals God's self to Jacob in a dream. That it's fascinating that in the middle of Jacob's nightmare of a life, he takes a rock, he lays his head down. And it is a dream that reveals his future. A rock, it it, it ain't memory foam. It doesn't come complete with polyols, nor was it concocted by NASA in the 1970s. It doesn't conform to his head, yet this stone holds and places the greatest memory of his life. That constantly throughout his story that it becomes to revert back to this one moment. That this is the moment in the story if Jacob will continue to run or will he accept his call. In his book, God in Search of Man, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I think is the greatest theologian ever, The surest way of misunderstanding revelation is to take it literally. To imagine that God spoke to the prophets and ancestors on a long distance telephone, yet most of us succumb to such fancy, forgetting that the cardinal sin in thinking about ultimate issues is literal mindedness. And so as we come to Jacob's dream, we must understand that we can't just take it literally of what is happening and what it is foretelling of Jacob's future. So we turn to the Midrash, which gives us a better understanding of the text. The Midrash, is fascinating if you were to turn the pages of it because it holds the scripture passage in the middle and ancient rabbis begin to write their commentary around the scripture. Keeping it as a hedge, as a protection of thought, of safeguarding it, of what it could be and not that it has to mean just what it says right here. And through what we find in Genesis 28, there are a multitude of commentaries from ancient rabbis. One suggests of this dream that it's not actually angels ascending and descending on the ladder, but actually it is princes of heathen empires. Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and so forth. And all of these empires at one point will rise and will also fall. But God assures Jacob that this will not be his fate or the fate of his descendants, that God will protect them, that God will bring them back to the land of Israel. that no matter what country or territory seems to be as powerful, none are as powerful and gracious as the Lord your God. Another suggest from Rabbi Rashi concludes that the Torah is teaching us that there were angels who traveled with Jacob and protected him. But once Jacob moved outside the lands of his homeland, It becomes a symbol that the angels are still with him, guarding him, protecting him. And even as he and his descendants move further and further away of what they thought was home, what they thought was the place only God could reside, that God's presence would be among them everywhere they go even in the deserted places of just rocks. Even when he thought that he was outside the parameters of God and humankind, when he thought that no one could find him, when he was facing the truthful lesson of being plagued by pain and hurt and sadness, and confusion. The God's presence was still there. That he rises in the morning from the dark night of his soul to say, Surely God is right here. Surely God is in this place. Surely God has followed and continued to be with me. Surely this is no longer the God of my father, but the God of myself. Surely. Surely, God is with me. God wakes Jacob from the slumber of his reality to the life of his future. And there is something about Jacob's story that's in all of us. No matter how good we wear the mask, no matter how good we put on the smile and flash the teeth and tell everybody it's all right. There's something about Jacob's story that's in all of us of running, of pain, of hurt, of deceit, of not knowing. And I'm sure there's something about Jacob's story that also causes us to wonder, is God still with us in the places that we are right now? And the beautiful part of Jacob's story, the beautiful part of Genesis 28 is that it's really not about Jacob at all, but it's actually about God. That whether we take Jacob's name out and place in Tim or Pam or Anna or... Anyone, the story holds the promise, still stands that God's presence stays with us wherever we go. That the characters in our story will always have God as one, whether we realize it or not. Whether we choose to be honest about it or not. That the divine presence dwells among our plagued lives each and every moment. So whatever you're plagued by, whatever you're running from, Wherever deserted place you are, God is there. When it just seems like you can't keep going, when the baby keeps crying and you just feel like you have nothing left, when it seems like you need to turn to the bottle or or other things, God is there when it seems as if community has left you, when you are all alone, when it seems as if you just can't hold on any longer, the presence of the living God is with you. The story of Jacob is the story of us. And all of our stories Continue with the reminder, even when it doesn't feel like it, God is present. Amen.